I'm here today with Mike Molina. Mike, it's great to have you back at Gilman. It's great to have you in the studio. So ex- good to be back. I'm excited to talk to you about the start to the year. Thank you, man. I'm glad to be back. I'm ready to get back in here. Yeah. So, so how's it been going so far? How has the transition from Bishop back to Gilman been for you? Well, you know, so Bishop Walker School was a K through five. It was tuition free, uh, located in Southeast Washington, D.C., Anacostia, uh, neighborhood founded by Frederick Douglass. Uh, it served 100, well, about 99% African-American boys, had two Afghan boys who were the uh, sons of a teacher there. Um, so context couldn't be more uh, dramatically contrasted. Uh, but uh, what was unique and special about the connection between the two schools was this commitment to mind, body, and spirit. Mm-hmm. So it was an Episcopal school, so the spirit aspect was there in terms of the religious identity. Um, mind, of course, you know, academics were, were primary, and body. So these are, these are K through five boys. So, um, you know, uh, multiple recesses, I, you know, lots of attention to giving them the time to let off energy and, and, and uh, express themselves physically. So, you know, in some ways, the transition um, wasn't, wasn't dramatic at the, at the core kind of value level. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously way more resources, uh, K through 12, uh, Baltimore context versus D.C., which is dramatically different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> These are not similar cities, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, culturally, uh, even, even geographically, they're very, very different. Um, so... You know, the, the transition has been um, one of, like, revelation, you know, uh, reigniting how much I admire this place for the long-standing tradition, um, you know, finding those connections between the mission of BWS and Gilman, despite the different contexts, has been, you know, a lovely thing to observe. Um, um, it's been great to, to have you know, ample resources uh, readily available. Uh, always, always good for a curious mind to be around a lot of books and a lot of mm-hmm. people who are thinking about the world in interesting ways and be able to have those conversations. And um, so, so been good. I, I think one thing that I'll, I'll highlight though is, you know, in my new role, which is uh, assistant head for community inclusion and equity and, and administrator's role, um, you know, I'm not in the classroom as much as I was before, yeah. um, and and I'm out of practice, you know. And so, like, I'm I've been, you know, getting some good lessons from the students, and and uh, you know, uh, getting my chops back up as an edu- as a direct instruction educator, um, and which has been good, been good. I, that's my favorite part of all this deal. So yeah. to get back there has been wonderful. I agree with that. Yeah. One thing you brought up is the the mission statement um, between BWS and and Gilman. And I was talking to um, I was talking to my class. I'm teaching U.S. history this year, which has been interesting. It's been fun for me because I'm I'm learning, I'm relearning a lot of things that I've for, forgotten since high school or were, you know, were missed. And thinking about how I can get my students interested. And um, we're we're re- reading about John Winthrop and and New England and the city upon a hill speech that he made. And um, and I was asking my students from Bryn Mawr, Roland Park, and Gilman about their mission statements and how their a lot of schools, their mission statements do have this idea of, of mind, body, spirit, and community. Mm-hmm. I was pointing out, you know, John Winthrop wanted 
the community over the individual. Mm -hmm. And I was pointing to each of their mission statements at their school saying, same thing with your schools. Like they want to have community at the forefront of the experience. And I think a lot of schools think, you know, especially these three schools, think in, in a similar way of the city upon a hill idea, like we're a beacon for the world. Like once you guys leave this place, you're representing like a, a, a place with a lot of resources, but also a place that's like instilled these really important values in you. So you're in a way like this is a city upon a hill. Um, yeah. Well, so, you know, what's interesting is, is um, part of my work is going to be to complicate that idea. Right. Because uh, as many resources and we literally on a hill up here, and, yeah. <laughs> you know, we're, there are these five schools around here that kind of sit up at the top of things. And um, but well, and um, Gilman can't live out its mission uh, believing that it is a city on a hill. It has to believe that it's part of this community. And, you know, when I when I mention the difference in resources at Gilman versus the Bishop Walker School, it's not to say there aren't resources at the Bishop Walker School. They're different. Mm -hmm. You know, at the Bishop Walker School, it was on a community center where there was a, a children's national hospital on the first floor. So there was a pediatric hospital that served the community on the first floor of the building we occupied. There was a satellite of the Washington Ballet across the parking lot. So boys got movement classes. There was a boys and girls club that kept boys till 7 p.m. So lots of child care, right? So all of these amazing resources, in addition to the resourcefulness and strength and creativity of the parents and faculty of the Bishop Walker School. So, you know, it, although it wasn't on the hill, it was actually right, you know, kind of in the valley uh, economically, socioeconomically. It was rich with resources, mm -hmm. rich with lots to offer. Um, the resources, though, at Gilman are so um, vast in terms of material resource and access to you know, opportunity for teachers to grow and, 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 and uh, reach their professional pinnacle, um, that, that's the difference, right, is, is Gilman has more, you know, that's just money, it has more money, has more access, has more power. What Gilman does with that power is, is a critical check, uh, uh, you know, identity check, right? Mm -hmm. Will Gilman be an isolated city on the hill that sits atop and says we're the best and we're going to, you know, uh, you know, just enjoy our position as the best. I haven't experienced Gilman that way. My experience of Gilman has been, we're we're doing well. How can we be better? Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that's one of the things that brought me back is that that seems to be a core part of Gilman's identity is never resting on your laurels, mm -hmm. being willing to push yourself and say, what can I do better? What can I do better? And one of the things that Gilman, you know, has done well but can do better is how it relates to Baltimore. Yeah, yeah, right and. So now in uh, the Community Inclusion and Equity Office, service learning is a part of, C of, of CIE. Mm -hmm. So part of our job will be to make sure that uh, community service is tied to learning objectives. So when boys want to go and, and feed people who are hungry, they're also learning why so many people are hungry. When they want to go and you know, deal with um, you know, homelessness, they're also learning the social and ec economic um, inequities that may lead to so much intractable homelessness in Baltimore, right? Mm -hmm. And that's that's a key ingredient to a service, a real true service learning program. And that, to me, is part of Gilman. Uh, Ann Carey, who was a founder of the school, uh, would talk about uh, wanting to found a school where boys would be of Gilman, I'm sorry, of Baltimore, 
Of Baltimore, yeah. Of Baltimore before they went off and, and conquered the world, right? Be of Baltimore, have an essence that's tied to this city. And, um, you know, even though, you know, black Baltimoreans weren't allowed, Jewish Baltimoreans weren't allowed, Asian Baltimoreans weren't allowed to, uh, to access Gilman at that time when Aaron, Aaron Carey is saying this, that spirit of, of be of Baltimore is still a good idea. Mm-hmm. And, and Gilman should produce boys who understand this city are proud of this city. This is an amazing city. You yeah. know, I don't know if we talked about how much I really love this city um, last time. And I, I, it's even more so having spent three years working in D.C. and yeah. being like, yeah, D.C. is cool. It's well, super cool, actually. But it's not really my style. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be honest. Like, Baltimore is much more was, uh, for me. Was it the traffic that, that's making you say this? The traffic uh, in D.C.? The traffic was <laughs> terrible. Yeah. But, no, no, it's not that. It's, it's more, um, you know, it's interesting in comparison to what we're saying. D.C. is a city on the hill, for sure. They it, call it the hill. It's a, it's a concentration of power and money. And almost everything relates to how proximate you are to power and money. Mm-hmm. And um, the stereotype is that when you meet someone in D.C., the first question is, like, what do you do, mm. right? It's a stereotype, but it's also kind of true. It may not be as direct as what do you do, but there's always this, always this kind of probing of, like, what's your value? What's the value of my time in talking to you? Yeah, I don't like, like that. Like, who are you really? Like, who, who do you know? And, and I, I, I'm, I'm going to be recorded, and I'm, I'm going to make people mad because D- that's not all D.C. Anacostia is not like that, right? right. But the power structure in D.C. is very much city on a hill, right? Mm-hmm. We have all the power. How close are you to where the power is? Yep. That, that's not comfortable for me. That is not how I am. I'm from New Orleans. It's not a city on a hill. <laughs> it's a city in a valley, yep. quite literally below sea level. It is down to earth at, you know, in a literal way as well as in a spiritual way. And Baltimore reminds me of that, and it's much more comfortable for me. In D.C. And so Gilman, you know, the idea of a city of a hill, while well-intentioned to say we're going to do things right mm-hmm. and set an example for the rest of the world, it carries the shadow of we're better than other people or, right. or like we, we, we have the right to, to, to tell other people or lead, lead the world. When really, you know, that's not a Baltimore thing. That's more like a D.C. thing. Baltimore to me is like more, you know, when you meet somebody in Baltimore, it's like, you have a conversation about real things. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And not titles or positions or, you know, uh, who you know. Right. Um, and that's the stereotype. Too. I mean, all of it's generalization, so forgive me. No, folks for sure. I mean, don't hate me. Well, but, the thing about Baltimore that I've always found weird is when you meet someone and they ask you where, like, they ask you where you go to, where you went to school, and it always has to do with your high school. New Orleans is the same way. Is it? Absolutely. Absolutely. It, and, and this is a good extension of what you're asking as well, um, because one of the challenges of Baltimore, so clearly, is the inequity in educational opportunity. Right, and right. And so if you're asked where you go to high school, you say Gilman, it means a lot right. about you. Right. If you say Dunbar, it means something. You know, if you say Polly, it means something else. Mm-hmm. You know, if you say Mervo, it means something else. You know, so it really does matter. It's not, it's not just a quirky thing. People are asking because they want to understand, like, where, you know, how, you know, where do you come from? Like, who are you? Um, and and it, it does say a lot about 
about your experience. So, you know, hopefully one of the things I would like to do is, you know, in my time, contribute a little bit to a shift. So, like, if people say I'm from Gilman, it doesn't mean, oh, you're this, you know, hyper-privileged um, bubble baby who, you know, doesn't know anything about Baltimore and is not connected to the city and thinks you're a city on the hill, right? Like, I'd rather it be, oh, you went to Gilman. First of all, do you know some, do you know X, Y, Z, right? Like, because Gilman folks are out and about and part of this community. But also, like, an admiration. Like, wow, like, you went to Gilman? Like, and I know some people feel that already, but even without that whole thing of, like, Gilman's this city on the hill that's, like, you know, separate from the rest of Baltimore, more like, you know, the the story of Gilman in Baltimore is one of, like, respect, appreciation, connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd I love to do something, to, a small bit to contribute to making that as true as possible here. Yeah, and I know that... Um you know, we 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 talk about Reddy Finney a lot on the podcast, but at Gilman, but he really did lead the way in setting an example of reaching out to Greater Baltimore and in in involving Baltimore kind of beyond Roland Park. Yeah, yeah. He uh, so um, I've learned a little bit about how Gilman used to play the public schools and all the sports. Um, you know, I guess that stopped sometime in '94, in, in the '90s. I think. Uh, Coach Holly uh, said 1994 is when Gilman stopped playing public schools, but there was a time when Gilman would be playing Dunbar and all of these schools. And so there would be a site for, you know, cross-cultural exchange and, and people to, you know, rivalry, battle, but still build respect. Right. You know, that's right. one thing about sports is, like, you might, you know, you might hate that team because of because of who, who they are, but you, you do end up respecting them because they – you know, you battle, and when you battle, you earn respect. Yeah. Um, yep. And so there's there's a there's a level of um, of connection to the city that that Mr. Finney was leading as a as a coach and as a as a head school, head of school. Um, that is 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 uh, you know maybe maybe some of that's lacking now, um, mm-hmm. but there are other ways to make it up to service learning um, and other ways that we can we can make sure Gilman is a real connected part of, of Baltimore. Now, now, what kind of ways are you planning or probably already working with students kind of in on this mission? Well, students are already super active. You know how these guys are. They're ambitious. Yeah. So actually, just yesterday, met with the CIE um, Council and Committee. So these are leaders of affinity groups here at, at Gilman. And, and affinity groups at Gilman range from you know, African-American, Asian-American, Jewish uh, Awareness Club, um, uh, focused Bible study um, and, and many others and, and what they represent are all the aspects of diversity here at Gilman and what I've been saying a lot is diversity is a fact it's not a pro- project it's not an agenda it's not a political perspective it's the human condition we are diverse um, the question has always been how do we engage with that diversity mm-hmm. do we stay separate through segregation do we pretend diversity does not exist through colorblindness or do we accept that we're different and in that difference, learn from each other and build community. So the boys are already way ahead of us on this. Like, this is how they operate. When you see them playing, uh, oof, what's the name of the game? I lost it now. This, this new thing they do. Yeah, I don't understand that game. It's, uh, yeah, I, I don't either. But they seem to enjoy it. And, and it seems like everybody it's enjoys it. It's bringing people together. It's bringing sure. people together. What is the name of the game? Um, 
you're pretending like you're smack. You're yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And you have to make them look in a direction. <laughs> We're both going to be mad when we remember what the name of it, whatever this game is. But um, the idea of, um, you know, they are already building relationship across difference. You know, it's, it's we of older generations who really have to catch up with them. And so a lot of what I want to do is empower them, give them resources, um, uplift their ideas, um, you know, guide them and focus them where needed. But it's clear to me that they, like the affinity groups, are not trying to be silos. They want to they they attract people who are not of the affinity to come and learn and be in fellowship with them. They want to connect across the affinities. This is something they all, they're all learning, uh, yearning for. And so I want to foster that, give them opportunities to build connections across, um, across difference. And, and we're going to do a lot of that in assemblies. The CIE assemblies are going to have a wide range. One of the first ones we're going to have is, is uh, or one of the ones I'm excited about is, is, is Russell Wren, who's our uh, uh, athletic director. He's going to talk about his trip to Ireland. Mm-hmm. And Frank Fitzgibbon, who's from Ireland, uh, you know, Russell's family went, Mr. Coach Wren's family went to visit family, to meet family in Ireland. And Frank Fitzgibbon came here to build a family. And so they're both going to talk about what that's like, like what's mm-hmm. interesting, what's similar, what's different between America and Ireland. And part of the purpose there is to let everyone know that CIE isn't just about people of color or just about what people traditionally call diversity. Diversity includes Irish people. Diversity is the range of types of people who occupy this space, who, who call this place home. Mm-hmm. And that includes everybody. And that's a fact. It's not a something we have to push. We just have to acknowledge it and make the most of it. Um, and so the boy, like I said, the boys are already ahead of us on that. So really it's going to be empowering them, giving them guidance where needed, uh, making space for their ideas. Yeah, I, um, it's interesting that we're having this conversation today because I was talking to my class about community yesterday in the context of John Winthrop. And, and to me, a community is a is a set of ideas or way of acting or kind of a culture that a, that a group of people can build community around. That's right. And there needs to be that central point of similarity or it's it's just going to devolve into individualism. Mm-hmm. Um so I was just using examples, and one of them is the classroom is a community. I mean, I That's think right. about this all the time as a teacher is I, I need to build community in September and October in my classroom, and what does that look like? You know, hopefully in a history class, history is what we're building community around. Like you guys come from different schools. you got Bryn Mawr, Rowan Park, Gilman. Some people are new, you know, different races, different backgrounds, different family structures. But when you're in history class, hopefully – you're going to want to talk about history and build bonds mm-hmm. around that That's idea. Right. Even, you know, with as much diversity as you're bringing into the room, there's that one common thread amongst well, see, you. Yeah, and this is, this is to me what, what John Winthrop, I think, was getting at. And I try to, um, you know, there's an approach to, uh, uh, you know, intellectual investigation that I, that I take around, like thesis, antithesis, synthesis. We've talked about this before pushing students to consider the opposite or consider the negation of, of the argument that they believe in. The purpose of that is to synthesize a sense of, um, you know, respect for opposing opinions or, or different opinions. But also is to, once you get to that sense, the way to synthesize, um, you know, very differing opinions is to find that common value system, right? And what's, what's 
what's exceptional about America, and there, there's a, a legacy of teaching America as, a, as itself a city on the hill, and it's con- extremely problematic, right? Like it's, it's, it's tied in with manifest destiny, white supremacy, patriarchy, paternal, like a lot of negative stuff in that city on the hill thing, in that American exceptionalism idea. But one way I personally think America is certainly exceptional is this, this country was founded by people coming from all parts of the world. Some, you know, kidnapped and enslaved. Mm-hmm. Some migrated, you know, you know, Italians sneaking on the bottom of a boat to get in, get into the country. Some came as conquerors. Some came with wealth. Some came with nothing. Some came as prisoners, right, right. <laughs> indentured servants, right? Yep. All these people, and some were here already. Mm-hmm. In, in, in complex societies that had kind of democratic structures that preexisted what, what we typically think comes from comes out of Europe. You know, you think about the Iroquois Confederacy and all of these nations figuring out ways to coexist prior to anybody coming here. Right. So this country was founded on all these different type of humans trying to figure out something that they might have in common. Whereas any other part of the world, you know, the geography you know, created a natural kind of either phenotypical or, or some other kind of, you know, unity. We all look the same or we all have the same, you know, thousand, two thousand, three thousand year old history. Well, here we got 200 years, for, you know, of a, of a nation and maybe 400 years of flound, like trying to figure stuff out. Mm-hmm. And the whole, the, we're, we're, the whole uh, adventure here is about trying to find out what are the things we can find in common despite being different races and different backgrounds and different histories? Mm-hmm. What is it that we can agree on? And then founding a country on that. That's, I'm not saying it's, it's never happened in history because there are things we don't know about, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago. Maybe there, this is another iteration of something that happened before. But this is the place right now where that possibility of finding all of this common ideals and common values across difference. This is this is the place where it's possible, which is why it's so important to be to me to be educators and to be a history teacher and English teacher or any other kind of teacher who's going to push us to think about what we can make of this diversity. Mm-hmm. And I think I think studying history, you know, I've been talking to my students about why study history mm-hmm. is I had a college roommate that I was with this summer, and he's, you know, he's a really, really smart guy, but he, he's not, he doesn't really care about history. And he said something like, I don't really, I don't really find, I need to, you know, I'm living in the present or something. And I had my students write him a letter. I was like, do you, you guys agree with this or do you disagree? And I wanted to see some, you know, some um, opinions come out of that letter. And um, because I, I really think, in order to make the most of the present, you have to understand the history of the country, at least, or what we're doing. And I really like the idea of America as an experiment, right? Because it, it, it is an experiment. It was, it's a young country, um, historically speaking. And, uh, you know, if you don't understand kind of the roots and the ideas that made the country what it is now, I don't think you can, you can really act on, on building it and making it better. Segway, I'm gonna I'm gonna just throw this out here. So I want to share this. Last time I was here, I shared um, something, so I'm sharing this again. So uh, speaking about history and American experience, uh, my first round of teaching here at Gilman as an English teacher, I had to teach Huck Finn, which led me to want to f- see the value in 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 
Mark Twain as a writer, of course. He's, you know, brilliant, you know, funny, insightful, challenging, um, sarcastic, you know, he, a contemporary, a uh, lot of value, a um, lot of racism, like outright negativity, uh, you know, and I, I wanted, wanting to figure out how to ac acknowledge that history and not lose the value of Mark Twain, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what, you know, I, th I think your, your assignment is hopefully guiding the students towards is like, you know, there are ugly things in history. There, there's violence, there's uh, genocide, there's, you know, oppression. There, there are these things in history that we feel like we need to get beyond and just, can we just let it go? Can we just not talk about slavery anymore? Can we just not talk about segregation? Can we not talk about those things? But unless we talk about them, we have no idea what we're looking at when we're walking around right now. And, and so this, this text that I'm still working on uh, changed the title to No Such Thing as a Slave, and that, and that has, there's a meaning behind that. But the idea is that um, we need to not only look at history, but we need to engage with it meaningfully in order to make sense of this day. Um, you know, the, it, his, history is alive now. Like it, the, 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 it's, and it's not just the echo of history. Like the literal flesh of history is around us right now. Mm -hmm. and, and there's no way to, to grasp what's going on now. Why does Gilman exist? Why does Roland Park exist? Like you might, if you came here without historical context, you would walk in and say, wow, this, this really wealthy neighborhood has a really wealthy school. I guess that's just the way it always has been and always will be. I mean, it's just like that. Mm -hmm. But when you learn about Baltimore history, to learn about the history of Roland Park, learn about the history of Gilman, you realize that, uh, you know, everything that made this school, you know, some of it was negative. Some of it, there was white supremacy here. There was patriarchy here. There was exclusion here. And the ideals, the values of the school still hold true mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in the midst of all that. So that now when we've gotten more clear and gotten better about understanding that this is a diverse community, what is, how are we going to make the best of it? Those same values, even articulated during that time of white supremacy and all that, those values still hold true. When Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King are pushing America to re be a real democracy in the 1800s and again in the 1960s, they went back to the Declaration of Independence. They went back to the Constitution. They used that language. Right. And they knew very well that those documents weren't written for African Americans, that they were written for you know, white male property owners. They knew that. But they also knew that that aspirational language would be the thing that would push America to live up to itself. Yeah, and that's why I, I think uh, some of the, you know, people call it cancel culture, just get, getting rid of things in history because they offend us today in 2023 or something rubs us the wrong way. I tried to, at the beginning of the year, teach my history class this idea, which you might find interesting, of Chesterton's fence. And this is G.K. Mm. Chesterton, English writer and, you know, thinker, um, had this idea of the fence. And it's basically... You come to a fence, you know, you just walk around, you see a fence, and you're like, why is this there? Let's get rid of it. You're doing a disservice because you're not looking into why the fence was built or erected in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I think I, we should treat history in the same way. Like a lot of, 
you know, a lot of the things that we could throw out because this guy was racist or this woman, you know, she had a secret life and she cheated on her husband or whatever. You could just throw them out of history. But by doing that, you'd be getting rid of the values and the virtues that maybe they contributed because it really is messy. There's, there's two, there are many sides to people. There are many sides to events. Yeah. And I have a great example for you as well. So um, in, in New Orleans, there, is a, there was a statue of a person named the PGT Beauregard. He was a Confederate general uh, from Louisiana, so uh, revered at a certain point. Um, uh, uh, some years back, his statue was taken down. And the interesting thing about PGT Beauregard is during Reconstruction, he completely flipped positions and was an advocate and like an outspoken vociferous advocate for not just civil rights but full human rights for black equality um it's this is not euphemism this is not me trying to make best of this person he was run out of louisiana he spent the rest of his life somewhere else because of the remaining confederate uh sentiments would not allow him to continue to to live without assassination in Louisiana. That's how vociferous he was. And so my, my thing about taking down that statue is we missed an opportunity because the problem with most of those statues, and there was a big one of Robert E. Lee, or, or on Lee Circle in, in Louisiana that was taken down. The, it, it, Robert E. Lee had no relationship to Louisiana. Um, you know, by all accounts, he changed somewhat after enslavement, but was a notoriously uh, violent enslaver. Um, and and the putting of him on that pedestal happened long after the Civil War, and it was people who were white supremacists who wanted to re- like rewrite the history of the Civil War as this lost cause of great men, as opposed to you know, kind of traitorous enslavers trying to keep their property and keep their, their control over the social and political order of the South and not being willing to be part of a, a union, not being willing to be part of a democracy, not being willing to compromise all against all the things America stands for. There were people who still had that sentiment who many, many years later started waving the Confederate flag and putting up these statues in order to promote white supremacy. So some of those statues are really specifically relics of white supremacy. And some of them should stand so that we can have a conversation about that fact and about people like PGT Beauregard who actually had a transformation. You know, there, there are models of people who changed over the course of their lives. Twain was another one who, if we just erase them, if we just say, you know, they never exist, let's pretend like they never existed, we don't have to wrestle with their problems and the things they did wrong, and we don't get to acknowledge that human beings can evolve. Mm-hmm. We stay stuck in this idea that you know, once a racist, always a racist, or once a whatever, you know. And and so there's, what would it, you know, what my problem with the cancel culture kind of, you know, moniker, yeah, is it a lot of times it's, it's just not real. Like people are not being canceled. You know, people people are. are or reaping the the uh, response of, of their statements. Right, right. You, you have free speech, but you're also free to have the consequences of your speech. And if people don't like you because of what you said and won't buy your product or don't want to uh, go see your movie anymore, that's 
that's freedom. That's democracy, right? Right. So However, people talk. People talking. Yeah, that's what happens. I mean, you if you offend somebody and they don't want to deal with you anymore, that's part of life. Yeah. But when we're talking history and we're talking what are the monuments that will remind us of what this country comes from, got to be a lot more thoughtful, I think, and careful to really ask the question, why is this here? Where did it come from? You know, who put it up? Why did they put it up? And, and maybe give things a chance before just wiping them all out for, you know, just willy-nilly everything. Wipe it all out. Some of that needs to stay there. And maybe we put context around it. Maybe we, you know, um, anyway, yeah. Yeah, going. I, yeah, I think that's interesting because I think a lot of people, when they think of statues, for instance, and, and I don't really have a, have a stance on statues because I think a lot of them are different, and I, I, don't, I don't know. And, and, you know, I, I think they should go to a, in a museum. Some, I don't know. But I, I think a lot of people think of statues as celebratory. This is celebrating someone when... In fact, I think statues and art and, and books are also ways to remember things. Yeah. And if you don't remember what happened and who was here and what they did, then you just for, forget about it in history and you're naive and you don't, you don't know. And you may lose good examples. So the, for the, the, the one that was in City Park, what I, in City Park in New Orleans, right, PGT Beauregard, it had him on a horse as a Confederate general. That was the statue. So they froze him at his worst. When they could have put a statue of him as a, in a suit, you know, as a congressperson, you know, making a speech about black human rights. Mm -hmm. And on the plaque said, a man who was once a Confederate general turned into an advocate for black human rights. And now we're, we're honoring the best part of him. Mm -hmm. But the, because those statues went up to celebrate white supremacy, they froze him on a horse as a general Right, so the monuments are important because they they do they become these heroes. They the idol they become idols yep. of, of of what we we look up to and what we admire. Robert E. Lee's thing was like fifty feet tall, right? You know, let's not do that. Let's let's instead of PGT Beauregard on a horse in a Confederate general's, let's honor the fact that he changed and use that as a model. And there are lots of examples of that. And, and it, it, to me, it's, it's the synthesizing, right? Like, this person was a racist. They were put on a pedestal during a, an age of, of rampant white supremacy. They changed. How do we synthesize something that can be actually useful out of all of that complexity? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and put that on a pedestal as something that, oh, yeah, people can change. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I think that's what I'm enjoying the most about teaching and studying history is how complicated and complex it is and how the more you learn, you know, the more your own ideas about events and people change. And I think it's important to remember that history, you know, it really is about people just like you and me, right? And, and, and if you think about yourself, you're so all over the place. I've changed so many times in my life. I do so many things that are messed up all the time. And I think back to myself, like, why was I doing that? I was stupid. Or I do some things that are really cool and nice and, you know, positive and virtuous sometimes. And I'm like, that's, it's, it's part of the human condition. And Jake, if, if, if you, if you were a statue, if there was a statue made of you, there could be one with a lacrosse stick, right? There could be <laughs> one with a pencil drawing. There could be one of you teaching. It could be one of you coaching. One with me and Cesare podcasting. Podcasting, you know what I mean? Right? So, like, why freeze people in one thing, right? Unless we're going to create 
and, and this is going back, let's, not, not beating the statue thing to death, um, but just history, right? Like the purpose of teaching history and engaging with history is to show that complexity and not oversimplify. And, you know, like I said, Twain, that's, that's my dude, man. I, I admire him. And he was, he had some issues, man, like some real issues. Um, but if you throw him out, he, he was one of the most intelligent and insightful critics of hypocrisy in America mm-hmm. that America has ever seen. Called it out, called it out beautifully with humor, with charm. Yeah. You know, uh, traveled the world doing it. He was a speaker, right? He was yeah. did speaking tours. It was, if I, you know, I, I, w- I would love to have, like, had a chance to hear him speak or, like, have a conversation with, with him. Um, and, then, and the book I wrote is really a conversation with him. It's, 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 it's as an author, seeing the value of what he wrote, seeing, seeing what I consider mistakes or, like, not, not, you know, structural or literary mistakes, but, like, mistakes in perspective. Um, so, so I know we've talked about this before, but um, does, it, does it bum you out at all that Twain isn't being taught? As, as much anymore, like Huck Finn isn't really in the American literature curriculum, and I know you taught Huck Finn when you were here teaching American Lit, and you talked about before how much research and work you did to teach it the right way, but the fact that we don't even really talk about it in American literature, is that is that bum you out at all? What bums me out is that I don't feel like teachers are ready to teach it. It's, it's less that people won't teach it, because I think a lot of people shouldn't teach it. Yeah. If you're not willing to do the work right. to understand Twain and his context, to, to be able to call out uh, you know, the racism, but also see the value, if you're not ready to do that, you shouldn't teach uh, Twain. And, uh, and that's what bums me out, is that, that there aren't more teachers willing to do that work mm-hmm. um, to make value out of Twain. That's, that's what I think probably would be sad t- to him. You know, that they wouldn't be, because he was so willing to critique himself at all times, mm-hmm. right? So he set it up, like, almost for us as teachers in particular. I don't know if he meant to do that, but he set it up for us as teachers to have so much to work with if we were curious. So, I, you know, I think my role now can be to help provide resources and context so teachers can do it well. Because if you don't do it well, it can cause harm. Right, right, like not just for an individual student who might feel offended by the the N word two hundred seventeen times in a book, but the um, the lack of care with something so complex as the relationship between a poor, abused white child and a an enslaved black man it, it could. It, it could do damage, <laughs> but, yeah. but so what, and that's where the book comes from is because I think what I want for this book is I want English and history teachers to read it and see the value in the original text and in Twain and see the connections to today and the overarching thing I've come to learn, which helped me revise it. America is like a family and if anybody here ha- anybody has family, family dynamics can be tough. If you have siblings, it's you know, it's not always fun, right? Sometimes you have real complex, even even traumatic 
experiences that, you know, are tough. And, I, and when I think about, in particular, black Americans and white Americans, it's like we grew up in this family together and we got all this unresolved stuff. And every time we sit together at Thanksgiving dinner, it's so tense and toxic. And sometimes we get along, sometimes we want to punch each other in the face. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and it's like we're competing and we're kind of encouraging each other and kind of competing. You know, it's, like, it's almost like a sibling relationship in some ways, you know, having started out in this country the same time, right? And then if you throw in indigenous people, maybe that's the big brother. You know, it's like a big brother, middle sibling, mm -hmm. big sibling, middle sibling, youngest child thing, right? And I'm going way too far with this analogy, but I, with, with, at the core, though, I think if we don't, as teachers, do the work to complicate this stuff and make it, you know, at the same time accessible to students, we should we should leave it alone. So I prefer them folks not to teach it rather than teach it poorly. And what I'm doing about it is trying to provide something to help. Um, and even in this role, I'll do that, you know, um, hopefully provide resources to help. Yeah, and I think that brings us kind of right back to where we started with the, the talk about community, and that's what we, you're doing, that's what I'm doing in my classes, hopefully, is just building community amongst very different people, right? You've got to get them to get along, to hopefully like each other, hopefully have a good time. Hopefully, learn things about where they came from. Um, hopefully, respect each other. That's number one. Yep. But but try to live up to these virtues and these values that we put on the wall everywhere. Yep. But we've got to actually, you know, live by, which yep. is a lot harder. Yeah, it's harder. Yeah. Community. Uh, last thing I'll throw out at you is, is Henry uh, Henry Smythe, head of school, um, found out. Well, he I guess he knew that the bees in Gilman Shield represent community and industry. But he, he highlighted that point um, in a recent conversation or recent uh, speaking in front of new faculty. And what we've been talking about, he and I, is, is how, you know, that's such a, a wonderful charge for us is that community takes work, right? If, if, if you really want to build community, it takes work because you're going to, you know, rub elbows the wrong way sometimes. You're going to make a mistake. You're going to, you know, have to learn things, and that's not easy. But it takes work, and the work is worth it at the end of the day. Community, you know, that's the human, that's, that's our human superpower. We don't have claws. We don't have, we don't <laughs> we have fangs. Fly. We can't fly. We can't breathe underwater. You know, in a lot of ways, we are very much inferior to animals and, and, and plant life even. They produce their own food, and they, yeah. Right. The yeah. thing that we have is we communicate with each other and build community and we stick together. That's how we've been able to survive and evolve over millions of years. Mm -hmm. That's what we got. Yep. Yep. So we have to make the most of it. Yep. Very true. Well, Mike, thank you very much for, for the words, um, for coming in. It's great to have you back yeah. at Gilman, back in the studio. Yeah. And best of luck this fall with everything you've got going on. Thanks, Jake.